welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan and Josh. Hello there. And Marcelo. Hello, everyone. He's back again. Uh, starting a new job, too. Uh, Marcelo is now teaching at the university. Kudos to him. Very exciting stuff. Today, we're going to be going and discussing ranked choice voting and just in general election methods. If you missed it, Sarah Palin lost the special election in Alaska for the, uh, well, it's for the, the U.S. House of Representatives. Alaska gets one seat and it went to a Democrat who was lesser known, like not off the map, not out of the blue, but I think she was not favored to win. And she spent a lot less on the election compared to Sarah Palin, like, like a rate of like four to one, if I heard correctly. Uh, don't quote me on that, but it was, she definitely was outspent. So Dark Horse coming in for the win there. Uh, let's go ahead and just, we'll just open it up. Uh, this is not really going to be debate based, it's just more just discussion. So let's just talk about the election methods. I'll turn it over to you guys. Yeah, so ranked choice voting isn't what we have here in the majority of elections in the United States. There's a couple uh, districts and a couple states that have moved to allowing it. Not all districts in those states have taken it up. Some states have it more broadly. And the general gist of it is, and the general argument that goes behind it, is that when you're looking at an, a typical election and you have that you need to get a majority to win, you may not be likely to vote for someone who may not win. So think if there was a libertarian candidate or a Green Party candidate on the ballot and you know you were either Republican or Democrat leaning, you might want to not vote for the two-party system, but then you know that is kind of, in some sense, people would say, throwing away your vote is how some people feel about it. So ranked choice voting allows you to say, I would prefer this person, but if that person clearly isn't going to win, like they only get 5% of the total vote, then switch my ballot over to this other person so my vote can still count and I can still more freely choose who I want to vote for instead of being constrained to just picking from the two parties. So there's a lot of there's a lot of grassroots political energy from it. There's not a lot of mainstream political energy from it. And, you know, that's because it would weaken the power, you know, the death grip that the Republicans and Democratic Party have on our political system. It is a threat to our current two-party system in no small fashion. I'm curious how this would shift the lobbying game. Um, and I, I'm curious, well, and maybe it wouldn't have any impact at all. Uh, Marcelo, do you have any thoughts on how maybe that would impact it? I also think there's something to be said about how the parties would react if a measure, like if a proposal was offered in Congress or in the Senate to change it to ranked choice voting. I don't really know how the parties would react. I'm sure they enjoy being one of the two major parties, uh, and they would be like, uh, we don't really want this. I, don't, I really don't know what, what, what the party's uh, position would be on it. I think uh, it would definitely shift the landscape. Uh, I think it would probably open it up more. But in terms of lobbying and how much fundraising is needed, uh, both parties are so big and, and, and they're in such a desperate need of more money all the time that I don't really see them splitting willingly. Um, like they're not going to give up the power that they have right now. I feel like it would also shift the strategy of lobbying because if if my dollars go towards just one of the two big companies and it's split down the ticket, red-blue, right, as far as – not down the ticket, but down the party system, uh, who I'm, I'm going – I'm going to vote for this person or this person. I feel like it would – because we would have to anticipate other people actually having at least a potential weight more than they do currently uh, because of that fallback. I wonder if we just shift the way that they spend when they would spend uh, October Surprise, if that would still be a thing. It's just, it's just fascinating. And I guess there's also, since we don't have that system, it's very difficult to be like, this is what would happen. Because uh, we haven't 
had that. It was usually on smaller scales. Uh, a good, I actually don't know how many states have ranked choice voting, but it's not many in comparison. Like, there's fewer than a dozen if I'm, if I'm aware, and we obviously oh, don't yeah. have it at the national uh, level. And even if ranked choice voting was implemented nationwide, I don't think we would see the immediate effects too quickly because we have such large political infrastructure geared towards election and campaigning. Um, there would be somewhat of a shift, but even as much as people like to blame the two-party system for all of the failures of an, a third party in the American public, and you know you cannot excuse the political system and how it's structured, don't wrong. It's also still significantly the third party's fault. Um, the Libertarian Party and the Green Party are disorganized, badly managed messes. And so it would take a while for organizations to get going. And perhaps it wouldn't be those two parties. Those are just kind of the two largest third parties that we have with the Libertarians vastly outnumbering the Greens anyways. So you would see some shift. I think it would lead to a bit more issue-based campaigning and issue-based kind of political messaging rather than necessarily too much um, on political branding in terms of party membership. Not only having candidates focus more on expressing more talking points and less uh, kind of party allegiance talking points, if you would, but then also just to how we see advertisements and campaigns spending in and around elections. Because we already see some organizations that are focused on targeting a single political issue. There are all types of, you know, all the different gun rights and abortion spendings left and right on both of those immigration issues. There are a lot of organizations that focus political message on one issue. And I think we would see more of that. We have been seeing more of that in general here recently. But I think that would lead to a dramatic rise because as a candidate, then it wouldn't just be energizing your political base, but having to more broadly engage with what was motivating voters to the poll to make sure. So I think it would make a bit, you know, dynamic and more responsive to the public will in the long term. Um, that's also a pipe dream. There's no promise of that. Can you imagine like people actually focusing on the issues? That would be yeah, crazy, crazy concept. I mean, that they, you mean that they actually have to, to try? <laughs> What a I concept. don't. I think it would be very interesting, and I totally agree with, with, with what Josh is saying on specifically on the parties deciding to campaign uh, on some very specific issues, uh, even if they're not from like the traditional, maybe the traditional position of the party. Yeah. Because I feel like sometimes in some elections, and even in the local elections, uh, most politicians' position is like, "Well, at least I'm not blank," and then it's like, "Well, you should <laughs> vote for me because I'm not." This other guy, you hate this guy, right? You, you <laughs> totally hate him. You should vote for me instead. Yeah, I think Josh mentioned single issue voters, right? The people who like they've got one issue, whether it be abortion or Second Amendment, and like that. That's why they're going out to the polls is because at the top of the ticket, especially popular in like presidential elections, they campaign on one thing. Like Biden's big thing was student loan forgiveness, right? I'm I'm going to do that. That was what he tried to campaign on, at least in part, among other things. And someone might show up because that's the most important thing to them, and that's why they vote for that candidate. I'm wondering, and I'm just thinking out loud here, I'm wondering if we would see um, more 
generalists, like they're trying to cover more bases, or if they would try to headline specific things. Because my understanding is this candidate, and I, and I don't remember her name. I should have, <laughs> I should have looked that up. Uh, but she won. Uh, but she also pulled in some some local, like at least to the state issues because she had campaigned on not just like environmental things but also on like the salmon population i don't know what's going on in alaska with the salmon population but apparently there was issues with it and she apparently polled relatively favorably uh, because she focused on those things that were uh, relevant to the base that she was trying to win the votes of. So she seemed to at least diversify her, her portfolio of issues in the campaign um, and versus, you know, what we see on, especially at the presidential election is like a big single issue. Now that might be that the presidential elections, they're not the same. So maybe that would shift the comparison, but also it might be the way that they've got the, the voting system set up. What do you guys think on that? I think it's going to impact, uh, Again, it's already been said, but it's not going to, like, overnight, not every party is going to shift their strategies. Um, I think it's especially going to be notable in places where maybe there's already examples of ranked choice voting, like in New York or, or other states where they do this pretty frequently um, and, and, and constantly. And, and it's going to affect more the local races first. Um, I cannot comment on the Alaska race. I just know that I'm very happy about it. Uh, and, and that's basically it. It was also, I think, a very special election. Well, literally, an special, a special election. Yes. But also one against a very a deeply unpopular candidate. Um, that, you know. It, yeah. It, it, yeah. Well, and it, that. It's an opposite, but it's also like, you know, okay. Yeah, it was. That was w w the article that I got is like the breaking news push. It wasn't from Apple. I don't know what it was from, but it, it was talking about how uh, Sarah Palin had not only we, we've had several special issues right democrats um they've had a bit of a flip in the last portion or at least like the last month or two since the hobbs decision going towards uh the or dobbs not hobbs <laughs> uh think of philosophy there for a second uh as they're going into the midterms because they were not polling favorably i wouldn't say they're doing great now but in the special elections especially we've seen a lot of the democrats do significantly better um, than the Republican counterparts. Now, part of that might be that, you know, you've had very unpopular Republicans nominated as, you know, we, we saw in this last election as well. So I'm not sure that I am confident enough in my knowledge of that to say whether ranked choice voting was the, the switch here or whether it was the unpopularness of the, the candidate that the Democrat who won was running against. It's obviously as most things in life, not just one or the other, True. but a good mix of both. Um, but from the little bit I've read about this election, and I believe the candidate's name is Mary Peltoa, um, that she had a very strong environmentalist vibe. One of the articles I read, the headline called her the pro-fish candidate. And so in some sense, if a particular region, because you know, congressional districts are big, not very big at the same time. I would imagine Alaska's are fairly large because there's not many people out there, so they cover a lot of land. But local areas can have very specific issues that become a problem to them. Like I live down in Mississippi, and right now the city of Jackson does not have water. Not that they don't have clean water, that they don't have water at all. The flooding and the rain of down here has come and taken out the water pumps, and the local and state government have not, you know, this especially the state government has not provided any funds to the city of Jackson for repairs in about two decades now, just complete mismanagement by the state. So there's very pressing issues like concerns like infrastructure. And so someone running purely on, uh, you know, I want to fix the water pipes, it could have a chance of winning regardless of maybe other political 
considerations that might be concerned. And realistically, someone who might politically disagree them for with 90% of their issues, but goes, this is the only person talking about the water, which isn't true. I mean, everyone's talking about the water now. The capital of the state doesn't have water. So it's become a lot more important. But I, so I think it allows that dynamic flexibility of if there is a very pressing issue to a community for a given election cycle, it can allow for more dynamic characteristics and, and people to run uh, to take place. However, at the broader national level, the Electoral College still poses a neutralizing aspect um, on this when it comes to how the president is decided. So it would take further consideration of how to do that, I think, before we even saw the two-party system break from the presidency, even if we could loosen its grip on state governments and the federal uh, legislative chambers. Now, Josh raises two really good points, and I want to make sure we get into both of them. Uh, The first is kind of going back to the idea of like, what is the purpose of your House of Representatives? They're supposed to represent smaller districts. It's not the whole state, uh, which means that, you know, you've got a, a certain number of delegates who are supposed to represent each of those districts for the state. And again, that just spotlights exactly what you were saying there, Josh, that you you can run on a very local, even a very single issue uh, and do very well potentially depending on what that issue is if for example it's the water or it's the salmon like you you've you've got these things that they're supposed to be tied to the people i don't know that that type of campaign would work as well at the senate level because especially in larger states than alaska uh you're you're not going to have necessarily all of the cities slash districts agreeing that this is you know the issue to us and so you got to pick broader issues, bigger issues, and represent the whole state. Uh, the other portion there is the Electoral College. I know that you know that's that's an important aspect of remembering that the United States is a representative democracy. We are a republic. We are not a true quote unquote democracy. We don't have everyone voting for every issue. We don't even have everyone directly voting for all of our candidates. Now, right now, you do directly vote for your U.S. Congress, um, so both the House and the Senate. But you have the Electoral College when it comes to the presidency. I actually didn't really think about how the Electoral College might play into the ranked choice voting there. But that's a very interesting point. I don't know what to make of it, but it's very interesting to think about at least. Yeah, the Electoral College in no small part has caused the two-party system. If we had a different method of picking the presidency, it could have been possible. Why do you say it makes it? Like it it, it makes it the two-party? So when we have local elections – You can have someone win the office receiving 45, 48% of the vote, because maybe they won 48% and the other candidate got 45, and then, you know, nine other candidates running mixed up the rest of the vote and spread out among them. So whoever won the majority of votes takes home the office. With the Electoral College, that also plays out with but it, so electoral college plays out diff, a little bit differently. To win the electoral college, you do not need to win the most um, the most votes in the electoral college. You need to win 270 of them. And the moment you do, the presidency is yours. You can win 270 in one. You can win 300 or more. But beyond that 270 number, doesn't matter. That's, that's what you need to happen. If you come up at 268 and the other person isn't above 270, it gets sent to the House of Representatives and then they have to vote out there who's going to be president. So the fact that you have to get over 51% of the electoral college votes means the best political strategy to do that is to have two 
larger organizations bickering it out over their respective 51 to 49%. Because if you had four parties, not none of the parties would be able to get over the 51% threshold of the Electoral College, and that would send every presidential election to the House of Representatives. And so that's why it kind of shuffles us towards the two-party system, whether we like it or not, because of the mechanism of how it works. And that's why some efforts to make the Electoral College a proportional system. So if a state votes 40% Republican, um, 60% Democrat, the Electoral College vote gets split. And that would help a little bit, but you still have to clear that 51% threshold in the Electoral College um, to win. So that fundamentally poses a problem to removing the presidency out of the two-party system or a broader coalition building before the election itself. Quick question for you on that then. Did you did I understand you correctly that you said that what when the slates are split like at a state level? I know that it's all or nothing when it comes to the electoral college, but let's say I have three candidates polling and then we've got this third party. Because that happened, right? Like that was that was kind of the expectation with the Trump Biden twenty twenty was that uh, both of them were reasonably enough unpopular that some of the third parties were saying, you know, vote for us, send us to the House of Representatives. You know, that was some of the campaigns from from those third parties, which were interesting. Uh, but anyway, you're saying that if they're split three ways and one of, let's say, the ones that tend to do better, Democrat or Republican, they don't get 51% of the votes, then how does that work for the Electoral College? Do they split them off and then rerun the top two candidates? Or what's, do you know the process? I think that can come down a, a bit to states because some states will have runoff elections if a ballot is particularly close. And I think other states will go with whoever got the most votes in their state um, and then send that as a unanimous block. And not every state does a winner takes all with electoral college votes. I believe it's New Hampshire and Nebraska. Well, I know it's for sure Nebraska. I think it's New Hampshire as well that have. And that's why when you look at election night, uh, the election maps that are coming in during election night and the day after, um, They'll sometimes show like Nebraska, like with red and blue stripes on it because the districts, um, they split like three districts in Nebraska and they vote in accordance to their congressional map. So um, so it doesn't have to be winner take all for, I'm pretty sure 48 of the states it is with a simple, uh, the simple who gets the most votes. It's not even technically a simple majority. And a winner takes all voting for the president in the electoral college system, I think could get a little weird just because at the end of the day, the electoral college system is in a, it votes itself. So it has a constitutional mandate to work in this 51% method. And so I'm not sure altering it up too much would matter, but the idea of having states vote proportionally to the electoral college is still a little bit better as that can better reflect the popular vote of the nation and balance out representation, whereas the House of Representatives hasn't been updated in so long. More seats haven't been added. And if more seats get added, more electoral college votes get at, gets, gets added. Because even while it's not a directly proportional system, if Congress was keeping up with what the founders thought the size of a congressional district and how many people should be in a congressional district, we should have a lot more. But um, it's literally a, a space... Um, requirement issue. They don't. They don't have room for more chairs in the House of Representatives, and they won't uh, renovate it. Yeah, because uh, it would actually be really complicated. But that's not a great reason to not follow the philosophy of your country, though. Mm. So, 
Maybe they should extend I, the House I, of Congress. I hadn't heard it put that way before. And yeah, and so like when you hear that that a state lost or gained uh, because it is based off of population, uh, you're you're looking at a a proportional, right? Because obviously people are born every year, people die every year, but really I think they're more interested in who moves where. So some of the Democratic areas wound up losing some seats recently because there was a mass influx to states that tended to be more Republican based, and so then states are gaining or losing seats but they're not creating new ones they're just shifting how many representatives you get so like if you don't have enough uh to maintain let's say 30 delegates then you just don't get a delegate in the next election cycle and it goes over to another state if i've understood that correctly i would think so because i know like in new york and i forget which districts it was but they had to collapse a a congressional district and that led to that upset where that guy who'd been in there for 30 years lost, which is really funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it definitely plays out in different ways. But I'm definitely more for the... Because fixing the Electoral College requires a, a constitutional amendment. Given that that is, by all political definitions, impossible to achieve in the current political climate, um, finding ways to have the Electoral College better represent where people are is the best we can kind of hope for. Do we want to shift gears and talk a little bit about the difference between like a parliamentary system versus the Republic? And I'm, I'm not quite as well versed in that. So I'll let you two lead on that. The Brits are trembling. Um, (laughs) The Brits in Canada, Brits adjacent. (laughs) So yeah, parliamentary systems are more common in uh, countries that have adopted Western democratic systems that have been more influenced by European countries than ours. Uh, some countries that have shifted their political system over to uh, parallel or make their own versions of Western democratic systems have used a constitutional republic like America has. What's really curious, I find, if we look at some research in international affairs, countries that opted to adopt parliamentarian systems typically had a more stable country afterwards than people who adopted the republic system. And one of the reasons for that is, is... With parliamentarian systems, and this will sound a little bit weird, the government isn't a consistent being. It sometimes doesn't exist. The state keeps existing, and in the like, in the aspects of like, you know, um, the United Kingdom, France, and Spain, it keeps existing through the crown. Although not um, not with France anymore, but still with the United Kingdom and Spain. So the state is a separate, ind- independent body from the def, you know quote unquote the government which is composed of the people who represent it parliaments typically also don't have districts in the same way we do they have districts they're typically a bit bigger um, and a bit less focused on geography because what happens is the population comes in and votes and then the different parties get told how many seats they're going to have and you need a majority to form the government so you can pass legislation which also makes sure that you can't have a body of politicians elected who won't pass legislation. To keep their jobs, they have to agree to pass legislation before the get-go. Also not a bad idea. Honestly. <laughs> you, so, you, you sound crazy. Like, passing legislation, actually campaigning on issues. Cooperation. Coalition building. A little tyrannical for me, honestly. So... <laughs> they, they get elected and then they have to make the deals with each other. So they come in there and there might be five, six parties, probably only going to be 
somewhere between four and five, depending on the country we're talking about. And they have to make deals with each other and come up with the votes to form a government. And once that is done, then they can start legislating the prime minister. They'll come to agreement who that is. Now, if a, if a particular party gets, say, 50% of the public vote, they don't have to negotiate with the other parties. Um, but most of the time, that doesn't happen. And that's not to say that parliamentarian systems used ranked choice voting more than we do, because that's not true. There's You can have a parliamentary system that is a winner-takes-all, first-past-the-post um, electoral system. You can have democ- you can have a re- uh, republics with all ranked choice voting. The voting method uh, of selecting a candidate and then what the candidates do after they're elected you know, don't have to correlate with each other. So the parliament has to work together a bit more and make those coalitions. And it's not like the American republic democracy system doesn't have a coalition building phase. Because you can think about the deals that happen after a parliament and where they all negotiate each other are kind of the deals and political alliances that happen during our political primaries. It's where everyone kind of has all of their differing opinions about what the party should represent for, but they all kind of consolidate around the idea of, well, this is what the government should be. It almost sounds like the parliamentarian process then is like ranked choice voting post hoc like like and, and like almost in like a larger sense because in a sense you're putting out there it's almost like your candidates like you just you voted to put them in but then like the candidates campaigning to get the most votes then they have to form coalitions and what's really interesting when i had to study like coalitions and negotiation in my degree was like you you're basically if you're not familiar with this you're coming to people and saying it, it might be that the deal swap right i'll vote with you on this if you vote with me on this you're trying to form compromises that take place but to pass legislation or you're trying to find people and they would call them bedfellows people who you're willing to work with that you might necessarily agree with and you're forming a a mixture of people with potentially different ideological uh, ideological perspectives, but they're trying to have a common goal, and that common goal is to get their agenda through. It might not be the same agenda, but they're trying to work with people. And the other interesting dynamic that I think this tends to bring in then is, let's say just the three of us as an example, if we were the different, you know, parliamentarian groups, if I can't reach a deal with Josh, Josh also has to keep in the back of his mind, I might find a deal with Marcelo. So Marcelo just has to undercut Josh and then we get our things through and then we no longer need Josh. So you've almost got this constant fire under their butts to make at least a compromise to get something through that is the quote unquote best for them. And it it brings in a lot of the negotiation tactics to where I'm trying to get what I want, but I'm also not going to try to go for broke with something that might not be as popular and I might be a little more realistic to kind of counterbalance that. It's just different. I'm not saying either one is wrong. I'm just saying it's different. And I think that brings some interesting nuance with it, including what Marcelo had pointed out. They actually have to do something crazy concept. I think it brings some much needed nuance because most of the time, and and to me it's, it's very funny because I can't even uh, imagine that the thought of having more than two major political parties in, in this country, but like back home, we we do, and I'm not exactly saying that Peru is doing very well right now. We're in hot water, like always. But do uh, you see this this idea, right, of, of parties cooperating all the time to like different coalitions coming together and saying like, hey, we need to work to actually get something done, which is something that would well would almost never happen here. You can even use like the uh, yeah, like almost never, right? Like you use the example of the IRA that like every single Democrat voted in favor of it and every single Republican voted against it. And 
the Democrats had like one extra vote, and that's how they managed to pass this, this, in my opinion, incredibly great legislation. But obviously, let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> Too far I, topic. <laughs> I yeah, like you know, you could get, you really can't get anything done when 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 half of the people that are like you know like whatever you bring, I'm just not gonna pass. I'm just not gonna approve it. Yeah. And so I, I think that feeds into a lot of the political apathy that people have. Yeah. Well, and, and you're, we're supposed to see that coalition building in a republic. We've just, with the two-party system, seen that not happening. But also, even with the two-party system, you could still have coalition building. If Democrats and Republicans would reach across the aisle um, and form compromises and such, we could still see that. They're just not. So I would, you know, from that probably... Well, not probably. I, what I would say and what I, what I think is going on here is they're just not willing to make those compromises. Sometimes they claim it along a value base. Sometimes they just try to stonewall and they think, well, we'll just make it happen. Or they try to change specific rules or get things done in more of a, a let's, you know, like the Democrats just did this uh, with budget reconciliation because they didn't need the filibuster-proof majority so they didn't have to coalition build. They just had to get all the Democrats on board. So they focused on the two uh Lynchpins, right? You had Mansion and Cinema, and they had to get them both on board so they could then have Kamala Harris pass the tie-breaking vote. What's also interesting with coalition building, regardless of the type of system, is you can actually barter not just with a positive thing, but with a negative thing. So, for example, I could go to Marcelo and say, listen, Josh has enough votes. I need you to not vote for this, which means I'm willing to vote for something for you if you're willing to vote against this, right? So you can have different creative ways in which you try to either uh, block or pass legislation and we're just not seeing anything. Like we're just seeing stonewalling. You know, people are are blocking. The the minority is trying to always just obstruct and make sure that the stuff doesn't go through. Like that seems to be their one job. We don't. I have not been able to comment and say, "Wow, that was really crafty." You know, that was a really nice uh, deal that they made, where they said, "We'll we'll do this or that or the other." It's just, yep. I know. I can just tell you how stuff is going to go based off of who's in Congress. There is no attempt ever. In fact, people who do attempt are usually ousted by the Democrat or Republican Congress uh, or uh, the convention later. Usually is, is the way that works, or they're threatened. And it is worth noting that having a parliamentarian system is not some foolproof you know, idiot's guide to not having a political crisis. Um, it's become, a, it's, it's gotten better now, but if you come and look at Spain, you might think, oh, things, you know, Spain should know how to conduct its elections and form a government. The answer to that is not in its wildest dreams. Spain's king had to dissolve its government three times in a row over the span of six years. They functionally got nothing passed, nothing done, and there was a terrible economic crisis that was leading, that led into this overarching political crisis that was still unfolding when this was happening. They were deadlocked. The political parties could not get along. And what would happen is an election would take place. Uh, the citizens would come out and vote for the, you know, the parties and people they wanted. And then it would come to those negotiating times when it, uh, to build the coalitions to form a government. And it wouldn't happen. And the monarch, who only ha who only is really involved in politics to this degree, uh, basically has the ability to order new elections to take place, and you know get new people in there to see if a better if a deal can't be reached, or see if the po you know population's mind has changed about what political parties they're supporting to then allow for a coalition to take place. This happened. I want to say it was three or four elections took place that ended up with them being dissolved. And it was an ongoing like political crisis to them. Now, 
were state apparatuses still working, you know, uh, education systems, social support, medicine, and stuff like that? Sure. All that was taking place. And that's the difference between the state and the government. We can even see that here in the American system, right? Congress can't pass any laws, yet the IRS still does its job, the Department of Transportation does its job, the EPA does its job, because those are the state. We like to call it all the government, but those things are actually the state. Not the border, not the land, not the people. Those institutions are what make the state. Uh, And it is the politicians that form a government that control the state. And so maybe like for educational win, we can say the parliament makes it better clear about what is actually going on in political philosophy. Um, So easier government 101. But while it is a way of compromising and deal making and coalition building, it doesn't work you know, to the extent government dysfunction is, and I think as Ryan was pointing out really well, based a lot on the personality, personalities in office and their willingness to cooperate, make deals, listen, and focus on things that make meaningful differences rather than political grandstanding over easy campaign issues. So there's certainly different upsides to it, but they're not exempt from what we go through and they can have unique pitfalls of their own, like the inability to form a government and or a lot of coalitions end up functionally like a two-party system, like the Tories and the Labour Party over in the United Kingdom. They're Republicans and Democrats, although the Labour Party is a bit cooler than the Democrats, but uh, (laughs) they are. They're they're actually, there's some problems with the Labour Party, but they're a lot better than the Democrats. Like the Labour Party occasionally cares. It's (laughs) Not the, so, and obviously we can look at what's going on even in the United Kingdom right now. Like, politi- they're not doing much better than they are. They had the whole Brexit deal. That they had Boris Johnson. As their, they had Boris Johnson as their prime minister. So these aren't solutions that are going to work. But even when I think when we th- when we theorize and talk about statecraft and how democracy should work, the idea is building in as many systems that prevent it from breaking or at least provide corrective measures when it does break. Um, Whether that's calling new elections or some type of other solution. Because the American public right now kind of is just subject to the deadlock of the two political parties. And our electoral system isn't that greatly established to allow the rise and interchange of political influence of third parties. So It's it's very partisan and it's not getting any better. Uh, We were talking about this, you know, 2016 earlier than that and then 2015 probably um and now it's just everything's just become more polarized so it's, it's not true. really going anywhere <laughs> uh any any last comments or thoughts on this before we head to our hot takes i would say that even in times of political crisis it took spain several years to resolve theirs i imagine it will take us a few more years to to resolve ours mm-hmm. but there's been times of political crisis throughout takes of uh, throughout history and they don't necessarily spell the end for anything just that there's a couple really mean people currently elected and they'll eventually get unelected and or die <laughs> all right well remember you're listening to the central hub for political discourse we'll be right back with our hot takes all right on the note of government doing their jobs holding them accountable coalition building etc uh, if you're interested in reimagining the government 
uh, especially in a smaller sense. I would actually love to do a blueprint segment kind of adjacent, but with like Josh and Marcelo to kind of see like what their takes on it would be. But I'm doing a crossover with Ken from Taboo Topic right now to imagine what it would look like with a government with that's less federalized and more limited in power. So if you're interested in what that might look like, even if you disagree with it, check it out. Um, I'll link it below, probably even put something right up here, and that way you can check us out. But those segments go live every Friday. And we also do the week behind that as an audio only release on our podcast Friday mornings as well. So be sure to check those out. And Marcelo, if you'd like to talk to them a little bit about our memberships that we have available. Yeah, absolutely. So you're welcome to uh, join uh, our, our Discord and, and you're welcome to support us. We have behind the scenes content and, uh, you know, and we appreciate all, all our supporters very, very much. So feel free to check it out in the link. All right, we're going to go back to Hot Takes. See you there. All right, Josh, you want to go ahead and uh, kick things off with the Hot Takes? So my Hot Take is first-past-the-post voting and winner-take-all systems, I think, are bad for democracy, or at least there are better options. Options that not only encourage politicians to work together, but for citizens to consider their voting habits differently and maybe make different decisions because they have the ability to be more comfortable that their vote will count and mean something in different political systems. And it's not even just voting third party. If you live in a deeply one party or another state, like if you're voting for a statewide election in New York as a Republican, you probably aren't hoping for much. Just like if you're voting in a statewide uh, statewide race in Arkansas for a Democrat, you're probably not hoping for much. And both of those aren't ideal situations. So this isn't even just a problem that affects people who want to vote for third party, but even affects a lot of mainstream political thought here in the United States of people not feeling like they have a part in in our democracy because of where they live. And so systems that resolve that and better engage the public are going to be good in my opinion. But there's a lot more technical aspects of elections in America than just that. And so there isn't just an easy solution and none of the solutions are easy fixes and promises that will never have political crisis or not have deadlock before because every political system is vulnerable and flawed because it was made by vulnerable and flawed, very overintelligent apes, which humans are. We're not much better than animals. We're only clever with words sometimes and not even all of the times, but some of them. So build reliable systems that promote accountability and diversity of thought in the political system and the ability for bargaining is a net positive. I've always been a fan of ranked choice voting since I learned about it. Um, I've been excited to see more and more of its uh, philosophy spread throughout the United States and pop up in some local elections and some state level elections. Um, Because I think it really does provide us a better alternative to our current voting systems. Mm -hmm. You mean to tell me, Josh, that California is not going to go red this time? You sure? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you say it enough times, eventually you'll be right, right? That's I awesome. have it on good authority. 2024, <laughs> 50 state landslides. Hmm. <laughs> For who? <laughs> you'll, have, you'll have to wait. Wait and see. Okay. <laughs> All right. My hot take is going to be that... Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to repeat Josh because I really agreed with this. Every every system is flawed. And I don't think that that means we need to throw out the system that we have, but it also shouldn't stop us from looking at ways to fix the system as is and honestly just try to hold our politicians to account. That's really like what the great thought experiment that Ken and I are doing with Blueprint 
is, is we just kind of work through what are the current issues. And then instead of just complaining about it, we try to actually propose ones that work. But it's really difficult. And you mentioned, uh, Josh, in your hot take that some of them are intelligent. I, I kind of doubt sometimes how intelligent some of the politicians actually are just with the way that things do or don't get done. But that, that'll be my first hot take. My second one is just that I'm really interested to see how ranked choice voting at the national level would actually play out. That's really a, a lukewarm take because I'm not making a projection. But what Josh had said about the Electoral College kind of neutralizing, that was really interesting to me. I hadn't considered that. So I would actually be interested in going into a thought experiment that looks at how the ranked choice voting and a tweak of the Electoral College to complement that would work. Personally, I still think that the Electoral College is necessary to maintain more of a diverse um, and quote-unquote accurate representation, despite its flaws. Not to get too off topic, but that's kind of uh, what I would be interested in seeing as a tweak to it to kind of optimize it. And that'll, that'll do it for me. You just gave me my hot take, is that we need the Electoral College to ensure that Republicans have a winning chance at many of these elections. <laughs> It's only been the past two Republican presidents. Surely it wouldn't happen a third time. That, that, would, that would never happen. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to go back to, to just do it local, right? Like, and, and D.C. has ranked choice voting. Uh, at university where I teach now uh, has ranked choice voting for most of their student elections. Um, most of the people I work in New York a lot, they have ranked choice voting all the time. They seem to be doing pretty well most of the time. And I think it's sort of something that is just going to get more people involved. 50 years ago, you probably would not have expected any of this to happen. It's something that's going to take time. And if if it's going to take time, then I would rather just have these little test trials be in, happen at the state and local level first. I'm, I'm all for it. I think it would be a nice um, change of pace. All right. Well, remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias to stay updated at Between the Liars. Look for those lives. Look for those recordings. And if you enjoy the show, we sure would appreciate if you give us a five-star review and help us rise to the top of Apple charts. I'm calling it 2024. It's going to be our year, baby. Uh, you don't hear it on the audio, <laughs> but Ryan messed up. Huh? All right. I'm sure you find yourself somewhere Between the Liars. We'll catch you back here next week. Goodbye for now. 